Welcome to another Griffith University podcast. So thanks very much for coming along. Today I would like to welcome Ms. Samantha Gunawardana, who's from the Department of Employment Relations and Human Resources here at Griffith. And today Samantha is going to talk to us about why export processing zones, despite their great economic significance in South Asia, have become the focus of popular protest amongst residents and workers. So I'll hand over to Samantha. Thank you. Thanks very much to the um, Asia Institute for hosting me, and thank you all for coming. So really nice to see some friendly faces and people who I haven't met yet either, but I look forward to meeting you. I'm new to the Griffith community, so it's always um, good to to attend these um, seminars just so I can meet new people as well. Um, I've modified the title of my talk from what was advertised. As you'll see, I've actually dropped the Bangladesh bit. I just thought it was, it was, it, we would be here for two hours if I had to also um, talk about Bangladesh. So I'm focusing on um, export processing zones in Sri Lanka and special economic zones in India, and I'll talk about the distinction between the two in a moment. Um, My introduction to export processing zones was through an anti-globalisation critique. Um, There was a book produced in the early 2000s called No Logo by Naomi Klein, which I think um, many of you would have read. And in this book, she talks about export processing zones as the shadowy enclaves of workers, um, where basically millions of um, Asian workers, Latin American workers... Um, and, and workers from the developing world basically find employment, um, but they're working under sweatshop conditions. And as consumers in the global north, we are very unaware of these shadowy practices. So her, her book on No Logo basically fit into the anti-globalisation narratives that were coming out during that time. Um, But what always struck me about that book and and similar critiques that came out at that time um, was the absence of worker voices themselves. And so prompted by um, this intriguing puzzle that she presented in um, No Logo, but also prompted by um, my desire to talk to workers themselves, I started to research um, export processing zones in Sri Lanka. And in particular, I wanted to understand what workers thought about their employment Um, and their experiences in the EPZs. So um, I enrolled in the PhD program at the University of Melbourne. I um, started to do ethnographic research, and I've been researching Sri Lankan EPZs since about 2001. What struck me over and over again about the use of export processing zones in the South Asian region was the nature of the promise and the nature of the peril that was presented um, as part of the popular um, political narrative in countries in that region. So the promise was, of course, economic growth, poverty alleviation, um, and um, employment opportunities. The peril was always presented as the exploitation of the people who were involved um, in, in work in those zones. Um, In the Indian case, that has expanded out now from just looking at workers to also looking at people who've lost their land as a result of special economic zone development. So um, what I'm going to do today is I'm going to talk a little bit about the differences between export processing zones and special economic zones. Um, There's a very particular debate that's underway um, in global political economy about what exactly EPZs and special economic zones are and what their purpose is. Um, Are they an exception to the rule in terms of the kind of models that have been used for economic development or are they a continuity of um, capitalist economic 
um, development models. So I'll, I'll talk a little bit about that debate. Um, I'm going to talk about how these zones have been used in South Asian development policy and then talk a little bit about the, the protest and mobilisation that's been aimed at, at um, special economic zones in Sri Lanka and India. Um, this presentation is based on research that I've already done in Sri Lanka around issues of protest and mobilisation and it also introduces India as an area of research that I would like to expand into for future research. So you'll note that my um, details of Sri Lanka are very detailed but my details of, of India are quite sparse because I haven't done as much research um, into, that, into that area going forward. Okay, so to start off with, I thought um, what I would do is basically define what we mean by export processing zones. So this is a definition from the International Labour Organization that has been used quite widely in the political economy literature as well as in labour studies literature. And I think it's quite telling that the most commonly um, used term or definition of an export processing zone comes from a UN organization that's concerned with labour issues. Um, and that's because of the, the critiques that have been levelled at export processing zones. So basically, export processing zones are defined as these industrial zones that have special incentives that are given by governments um, to attract foreign investment. The idea is that you'll have a whole um, range of inputs that are undergo a degree of processing um, through various production processes in the zone, and then they're re-exported. So they're basically... Um, zones that are set up for export-oriented production um, around the world. And there are different um, variations of these zones in different countries in Sri Lanka. They have been commonly known as free trade zones, but now if you look at government policy documents, they use both export processing zones and free trade zones interchangeably. Um, there are also other zones known as maquiladoras, which you might have come across in, in parts of Latin America, in particular in Mexico. Um, but almost all countries around the world now have what are known as industrial zones as well as free zones. And the whole idea, again, behind them is that they're these um, specially designated territories, if you will, um, within a given country that uh, if you are to invest in them, you, you, um, you attract special incentives including tax holidays, um, uh, special assistance from governments for setting up your facilities, um, infrastructure assistance. Um, you might also um, have um, um, subsidies for electricity and other overhead costs and so on. So the idea is to make it as easy as possible for um, firms to conduct their business within these zones. And because they're foreign, um, often the, the idea is to attract foreign investment into these zones. The idea is that this foreign investment um, will help to generate um, employment opportunities for local populations um, and thereby um, um, contributing to poverty alleviation projects. Free trade zones have been long for, around for a long time and it's been said that they've evolved from earlier forms such as free ports in the 16th century um, and they basically evolved from these free port forms um, into these export processing zones with the advance of capitalism. So free ports were established in the, um, in, in the 16th century to ease the transport of goods and services to get around taxation um, requirements during that period of merchant trade and so on between imperial powers. Um, what we have today, of course, is very different. The, the, the economies, uh, global economies are very different um, it's said that we no longer have colonial relations and um, we're all familiar with what's happened in, in the local um, political economy since World War II with globalisation and so on. 
Um, I think um, looking at some of the research that's been done on export processing zones, what's really intriguing about them is that their use was accelerated in the post-World War II era um, and they became entangled or entrenched in development policy prescriptions that were coming out of world organisations like the World Bank or the International Monetary Fund um, and they were promoted by countries like the US for developing countries. But it, when this was happening, they weren't seen as, as anything out of the ordinary or bad in the sense that the idea was that these export processing zones would generate mass employment for um, unemployed rural peasant populations in developing countries. And the idea, of course, was that you needed to move those developing um, country populations and the economy from an agrarian base to an industrialised base and so on. So the, the prescription of this policy was linked to economic development policies that advocated um, that developing countries needed to go through different stages of industrialization in order to become a developing country. And so they weren't treated as inherently exploitative. They were basically seen as a necessary stage of development to incorporate the vast pools of, of labor. Um, I don't think it was until the late 1970s that the, the exploitative nature of this employment um, that was taking part in export processing zones really came to the forefront. Um, as many of you are aware, um, there was a, a seminal study that was published in the late or early 1970s by Froebel, Henrich and, and Kreis that looks at the International Division of Labor. Um, that study basically looked at free trade zones to articulate that there were these vast restructuring that was occurring in the global economy and free trade zones were now becoming the sites where global capital from um, the global north was relocating to. So there was a, a relocation of production facilities, basically, from manufacturing production, production facilities from the global north to developing countries in the global south. And this was creating all sorts of problems for the countries in the global south as well as for workers in the global north. So it really wasn't until the, the, the 1970s that people really started to look at export processing zones as problematic. Um, Sri Lanka was an early user of free trade zones, if you will. The, while the, the policy of setting up free trade zones was, was, um, was promoted in the early 1970s, it was later dropped due to popular protest, but it was picked up again in, in 1977 when um, a new government that had, um, I guess you can say, a more market-oriented ideology and outlook um, was elected into parliament and they instituted a whole raft of economic development policies that shifted the country from import substitution to export-oriented development. And free trade zones um, basically became the centrepiece of that policy. So um, export processing zones are, are rather mature in Sri Lanka. They've been around since the late 1970s. Um, but they've always attracted investment into, in labour-intensive industries like apparels and textiles. So for the most part, the apparel industry has dominated um, production processes in, in the free trade zones. The first free trade zone in Sri Lanka was set up in Patanaika, um, there on the, on the left. Um, and they subsequently grew around kind of the, the southern central regions of the country. You'll notice there's a sparsity up in the north and east. Um, and that's because, um, as many of you know, there's been a civil war that went on from about 1983 um, up until 2009. And that's also the period um, in which the apparel industry really took off in the country and we see um, an expansion of manufacturing and, and free trade zone activity um, across the island.
Um, today they employ about 300,000 people directly and about 600,000 indirectly, but that's, that's um, variable. And they employ mainly women workers, rural migrants from dispersed locations around the country who migrate to find work in some of the urban centres, although what you'll notice now is that there are zones set up around, around the country. So, but for the most part, young women, young unmarried women, are still migrating for, for work in these industrial zones. The situation in, the, in India is a little bit different. And if we look at the Indian case study, what's it, what I think is very interesting about India is that it dabbled in the use of special, uh, sorry, export processing zones from the 1960s um, but for the most part, the use of export processing zones has been considered a failure in India. And so it, it didn't generate the kind of outcomes, that, um, export outcomes, employment outcomes that the country was hoping for. And subsequently, um, they shifted uh, to, to the use of special economic zones in the 2000s. Um, in, in the year 2000, um, it said that the Indian government upgraded to the use of special economic zones. And special economic zones are quite different to export processing zones in terms of the land use, the, the amount of land that's taken up by these special economic zones and the kind of activities that you find within the zones themselves. One of the key critiques of export processing zones in Sri Lanka um, was the lack of it supporting infrastructure. So while there was a lot of supporting infrastructure for um, firms and organisations and investors, things like roads and electricity, there was the lack of housing or other uh, you know, medical facilities for workers and so on. Um, in the special economic zones, they, they are much more all-encompassing. So they take up up to you know, 3,000 acres um, of land at a time, and they encompass um, residential, medical, educational and other business services. So they become essentially industrial townships, but they come very, become very insulated industrial townships. And as I mentioned, the size of these zones are quite significant. 3,000 acres is, is quite a significant um, plot of land. So the idea behind the establishment of these zones is that you need to find the land somewhere, and this has been a source of controversy in India over the last um, 10 years is this question of land acquisition. So in Sri Lanka there was a huge focus on labour exploitation and this is partly reflective of the nature of the manufacturing activities that were occurring in those zones, which were mainly apparel-based. In India you have, um, you have a whole plethora of activities in, in these zones from warehousing, um, international trading hubs and so on, through to um, textile production, gem, jewellery, pharmaceuticals, biotechnology, electronics, pharmaceuticals, and of course a lot of the knowledge intensive IT services that we're all familiar with um, in the West and we kind of stereotype about in terms of Indian production now, they're all housed in these zones. But the nature of contestation is really, and that, this is just a depiction of, of, um, of the size of, of special economic zones that have been approved. Um, the controversy resides in the fact that in 2005 there was a piece of legislation passed in India called the Special Economic Zones Act. And as part of passing this legislation, the, the Indian government went back to a colonial piece of legislation called the Land, I think it's the Land, um, Land Acquisition Act of 1894. This was a, a piece of legislation that was enacted by the British Raj to acquire Indian land in order to develop some would say positive things like the railways and others would say it was used to dispossess 
um, people from the land as well. So what's been happening um, is that this piece of colonial legislation has now been re-enacted to dispossess um, mainly peasants, poor peasants, marginalised communities from, from existing land. Um, I'm not going to spend too much time talking about this. I've touched on this a, a little bit, why these zones were used in South Asia development policy in the post-1970s. Um, it's tied to the, the export-oriented model of economic growth, economic development policy, um, and it's also been, um, I guess, overlaid by a neoliberal um, economic ethos, ethos where the idea is that you open up the country to international trade, you um, make sure that there are few or little barriers to that trade and you um, also open up the country, including the labour market, to, to market, economic market forces. Um, so these are the key points um, in terms of, 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 of why the governments of Sri Lanka and, and India have rationalised that, that export processing zones um, and special economic zones are the way to go. Um, because of the contained nature of these zones, they've attracted a lot of criticism. So one of the key critiques comes from this idea that these zones are exclusionary. And um, if we look at that first definition that's been put forward by Iwa Ong, Iwa Ong is basically a post-structuralist um, ethnographer who looks at the impact of globalisation and neoliberalism on communities and uh, marginalised populations in Asia. She argued that these zones are actually... Um, zones of neoliberal exception and what she means by this is that governments or sovereignties will use their power strategically to contain and exclude um, certain territories, areas or communities from usual policy, the usual business of the day. So the idea is that um, export processing zones represent what she calls an extra, extraordinary departure um, from usual policy. And the idea is to orient those groups or territories um, to the market economy. Um, and in doing so, she argues that by, by excluding the free trade zone or the special economic zone from the usual taxation laws, for example, of the country, or the usual labour laws of the country, or in, this, in the case of India, the usual land laws, you know, land rights legislation and so on, um, what you're doing is you're separating the participants in that zone from citizenship rights. So if you're a citizen of that given country, you have a certain set of rights, whether they be rights to, to land, to own and farm land, a right to livelihood, um, a right to labour rights, and you're basically se um, um, separating them from, from those rights. Um, that, that idea has also been critiqued by... Um, by, by a few. Um, Jamie Cross, who's also an ethnographer, actually argues that what these free trade zones represent are actually not, um, not zones of exception, but they're zones of unexception because basically in countries like India or South Asia, marginalised populations that end up working in these kind of zones um, are already marginalised and they've always had to fight for their citizenship rights within that given country. And so this basically represents a continuum of marginalisation under these development policies. So that's, that's, the, um, that's the argument. In Sri Lanka, um, this idea of, of free trade zones being a zone of exception has been put forward in terms of labour rights, and in particular, 
freedom of association rights, so the right to form trade unions and collectively bargain has been curtailed in the zones. And in India, as I mentioned, it's mainly about um, land dispossession. So my, my interest, after all of that kind of background information, it's taken me a while to get here, but my interest is really in um, grassroots or bottom-up contestation of these narratives. So looking at, at contestation of both development policy and the rationale for having, having certain development policies like the implementation of export processing zones, but also contestation within contestation as well, and I'll explain what I mean um, in a moment. So when we look at free trade zones, what, what really comes out of the literature is that there are two bodies of contestation that, that's kind of come out from the grassroots. One is a more of a political economy approach that looks at um, strikes and mobilisations which are aimed at employers where workers in these free trade zones are working with trade unions or non-government organisations. And this can include global organising, so organising across borders um, not only within a given factory in the free trade zones or a given country. Um, it also involves strikes and mobilisation aimed at the state with trade unions and, and NGOs. So if you look at the example of China, for example, um, a lot of the, pro the waves of protests that came out of the Chinese special economic zones were aimed not only at employers but also at the state. So that's kind of the more political economy approach. Then we have a more anthropological approach where we see in the workplaces, in these um, global factories in the free trade zones, you see informal resistance and cultural resistance as the primary, um, primary kind of weapon of the weak, to use a term by Scott, who, who looked at kind of subaltern resistance, that this has become the way in which marginalised populations in, within these zones actually contest exploitative or dehumanising development practices. The other body of literature that comes out is, of course, from the peasant studies literature, and this is the literature that I'm not too familiar with and I'm still um, trying to learn it and, and um, kind of invest more time in, because I think it's important to understand this in order to understand the case of India. Um, so there are a number of, of theories, political theories, that have come out about the way in which peasants will resist or contest development policies, starting from the idea that actually peasants are not very resistant at all, resistant at all because um, they are dependent on very marginal livelihoods and they don't want to risk those livelihoods to protest and engage in wider mobilisation. To, to self-interested po political actors, so that peasants are only interested, they make rational decisions basically and calculated investments about the way in which they engage in protest. So if I talk a little bit now about um, my field work perhaps for the next 15 minutes or so. Sri Lanka has, has been the focus of quite specific um, labour protests uh, um, around issues of labour exploitation in, in, within the Sri Lankan free trade zones. Um, when free trade zones were first set up in 1978, this was accompanied by government action which actually came down quite hard on, on the left parties um, in Sri Lanka and also ca they came down hard on trade unions in Sri Lanka as well. So what you have in the, in the late 1970s and early 1980s is a situation where the traditional vehicle of labour protests, the trade unions and the left parties in Sri Lanka were considerably weakened you had the setting up of these free trade zones. 
And within the free trade zones, workers faced very, very harsh labour conditions. They were poorly paid. Um, They weren't allowed to form trade unions. You had strikes were crushed with a lot of brutality in many cases. And you also have to remember that the majority of employees in these zones were young women who at that time were not considered to be um, political actors of any consequence in the Sri Lankan landscape. And out of this, what comes out is a movement which is both local and, and global in nature. So you have the emergence of new forms of trade unions, new forms of trade unions that are not... The Free Trade Zone and General Services Workers' Union is one example of the new forms of trade unions that came out that um, decided to actually take the, the kind of the vacuum that was left and try and think of new ways of organising these workers. Um, but you also had the emergence of women's movements, women's NG- localised women's NGOs and religious groups that also attempted to mobilise these women workers on the ground. And so there were a lot of movements um, on the ground that, that were basically aimed at protesting labour exception. And I'd be happy to take your questions, you know, answer in greater detail during the question time. But there was another form of contestation that was happening um, within Sri Lanka around the issue of free trade zone employment. And this was really about, it was more of a cultural contestation. The idea was that there were all these young Sinhalese Buddhist women who were migrating to these factories um, in urban centres to work, to, to work amongst um, you know, men and they were living on their own without parental supervision. They were also um, living in the cities, which under nationalist rhetoric was seen as a corrupting influence. So the city was a, was a site of corruption. It was a westernised space as opposed to the rural space, the rural village, which was seen to be pure and, and much more um, culturally pure, untainted from, um, for example, um, imperialist kind of um, um, influence. So the idea then that these young women were migrating on their own um, was leading to cultural ruin. It was leading to the degradation of Sinhalese Buddhist culture. The women were having affairs. There were unwanted pregnancies. There was abortion. All of this was seen um, as as culturally unacceptable. So the women workers there were perceived as both um, victims of exploitation, labour exploitation, um, and also... Um, economic exploitation but also cultural exploitation but they were also demonised in, in, in this cultural narrative as well. Um, so people protested export processing zones um, as a source of this cultural ruin. Um, but what comes out of it, however, is another form of cultural protest and the anthropologist Sandhya Herwomany has written about the subaltern, subversive identities that workers engaged in. So, for example, appropriating their degraded identities, so being out in public and, and, and um, appropriating what was essentially a working class looked down upon identity as their own identity. And this was a form of, of cultural subversion and cultural protest um, to the degradation and dehumanisation that these workers were facing in their factories and in wider society. So that was a form of, another form of um, a protest, if you will, unorganised protest that was coming out of Sri Lanka. Um, I won't talk too much about land and housing. Safe to say that in the Sri Lankan case, housing was not provided for the workers that migrated to these zones. And the local residents of the, of the areas surrounding the free trade zones gained considerably, which is in stark contrast to what's happening 
um, in India at the moment. I'll, I won't spend too much time on that. But at the same time that you have these local protests and resistances, both cultural, micro, you know, micro-level protests, and you have the labour protests and mobilisation, um, you also have an, an international narrative around um, export processing zones. And, and, and in particular, this was an anti-sweatshop narrative. It was about the degradation of global labour standards under globalised, within a global economy. Um, so here, the, the narrative is really coming out of the global north. Um, it's coming out of trade unions and um, NGOs working on what they perceive to be a threat to northern workers. So having these manufacturing activities relocate um, to export processing zones was re leading to a race to the bottom, in other words. And this became tied to wider narratives um, around globalisation and labour standards, which um, I'm happy to take questions on, and I'll explain a little bit further as, as we go on. What I found, what was really interesting about the mobilisation, the protest that was coming from this top-down position, I guess, from the international labour movement and, and then the local bottom-up um, labour mo mobilisation was that a lot of it was based on labour exploitation. Um, and there are many different groups that had a say in, in this labour exploitation that was going on in the export processing zones, from trade unions to women's groups to religious groups and other civil society. So it's, it's quite a... Um, you can't say that there is basically one form of... Uh, one type of mobilisation, one form of protest centred around the, the EPZs. And as you can see, there, the, the players are quite, quite diverse. When I started to do my field work, I, um, I also noticed that one of the things that came out of my research was that often the worker perspectives about labour exceptionalism in free trade zones was very different to what was articulated by trade unions um, and NGOs, both local and, and international. So workers were really engaged in a process by which they were, there was a lot of contestation, shop floor, floor protest, strike action and so on. Um, but it was really about maintaining their existing conditions. They didn't want to threaten um, their employment opportunities because they came from very marginalised communities with few um, opportunities for, for livelihood in their own communities. And so the idea was that they wanted to maintain employment in the export processing zones, but they wanted to ensure that they were subject to, to adequate labour standards as well. The situation in India is very different. In, in the early 2000s, um, sorry, in the 1980s and 1990s, when there were still export processing zones in India, but they focused mainly on manufacturing activities um, that employed women workers, for example, there was the same kind of narratives that were coming out about labour exploitation. But by far and large, the, the largest um, and the most vocal form of protest that, that, that now exists in India is around this issue of land appropriation. Um, most of the land appropriation is occurring from poor marginalised peasants um, and from Dalit communities, for example, people who are already um, in, in a low socioeconomic um, position in the country. And what basically happens is if a corporation wants to set up a, free, uh, a special economic zone, they apply to the government, the government grants them pressure, uh, sorry, grants them access to the land um, and then they evoke the, the, the colonial piece of legislation. They say that this special economic, economic zone is 
is basically being appropriated for the public good. Um, and they basically then try and buy out the peasants. So they'll seemingly, they're giving them compensation, but often the peasants have nowhere to go. Their farming activity, or they have very strong ties to that community and so on. But it has prompted a vast, a vast array, if you will, of um, protests around India, in particular in West Bengal and um, Andhra Pradesh. Um, perhaps one of the, the most well-known cases was when Tata tried to set up a, um, a special economic zone to produce its nano car. Everyone might have seen the nano car in 2006, and they faced vast opposition from peasant movements. This is a case, another case from um, Andhra Pradesh, um, in a small town called um, Polipali, where um, what happened was a special economic zone was instituted in 2008. The, the farmers and the peasants were basically told that this was going to be a, a green zone where there would be horticultural activities. So a lot of the farmers sold their land. Um, they agreed. They were really excited by the prospect of having stable and secure employment. But then what subsequently happened is that they found out that actually the special economic zone is going to be a pharmaceutical corporation and they were just going to be out of work and, and they wouldn't have any means of of um, generating livelihoods. They would be forced into an even more precarious labour market position, in other words. They attracted a lot of attention because what they ended up doing was actually contesting um, house, uh, contesting um, the, the local elections, the, the parliamentary elections. And the woman in the, the... The third woman from the left actually won, won a seat um, in the Lok Sabha, which is the, the lower house in the Indian parliament. But the campaign was... Um, the campaign was really driven by outside activists, which I thought was very interesting. Um, it was driven by individual activists and NGOs that transformed this issue from a local um, contained uh, community issue to one of national significance. Um, but what eventually ended up happening was um, they, got a, they got compensation for, for the land, the activists all left the area, and some of the peasants ended up just basically with nothing. They didn't have access to the compensation. They were, the, the compensation became tied up in bureaucratic measures and they're all kind of stuck without any land, without any employment and so on. Um, I guess this is probably the most important slide. It's taken me a while to get here. <laughs> but uh, it is, a, as you can tell, it's a vast topic, an area of study. Um, to in, in, in order to understand the nature of these zones, but also to understand the nature of this, the protest that occurs. And one thing, a few points struck me as I started to do a comparison of India with Sri Lanka. In the Sri Lankan case, case you know, I mentioned that the, the case, the protest was really about labour issues and exploitation of labour. Um, the protests and mobilisations have tended to be continuous. They've been supported by global actors, global NGOs, funding funding the, the cause, as well as providing visual um, support for, the, for global consumers as well. Um, their, their strategies have been evolving over time, and as I mentioned, because, it's a global, um, because global apparel industry dominates the free trade zones, and there's been a lot of interest in global apparel and conditions in the global apparel industry, um, their campaigns have become enmeshed then in this broader campaign about working conditions in the apparel industry. And so 
their labour protest and mobilisation is tied up to these global debates about globalisation, development and sustainability. In terms of the peasant protest, they've come in waves. There have been peaks and then the protests have dropped off. Um, they tend to be very dependent on outside actors, like, also like the, um, the, the labour protests, but the relationships are much weaker um, and the ties break easy, easier in a way. It's very much tied to local politics, which I haven't really gone into here. But as I mentioned, I've only started to look at the Indian case study, so it's quite new still. Um, another really important point that came out of this new comparison that I've started to do is, is really the different meanings that are attributed um, to the protest and mobilisation by the different actors. So what is it that these people are protest? What, it, what is it that the different actors involved in the protest against export processing zones, what is it that they're actually protesting um, for workers, it's, it's about maintaining material conditions in Sri Lanka, for example, as opposed to the global actors that have been involved in the campaign who are much more interested in articulating positions on globalisation and development and, and sustainability and so on. Um, another thing that really struck me about, this, about these protest movements is that they seem geared towards civilising the export processing zone or the special economic zone rather than actually substituting and finding alternatives to development. So they're the key um, observations that I, I might end with. I did formulate some future research questions to be refined, but I might leave that and open up the floor to the questions. Okay, Samantha, thank you very much. For more Griffith University podcasts, go to www.griffith.edu.au forward slash podcasts.